Okay, so we are in Second Kings. We saw last week the collapse of the northern kingdom. And uh, as we come to God's word again, let's just bow hearts and just commit this time of study into the Lord's hands. Father, we just give you this time. Father, speak to us, we pray, through your word. Father, open our hearts and understanding to your word, Lord, we pray. And Lord, that we would grow in knowledge and grace. Father, we thank you for these accounts that we can read. And Lord, wherein are lessons for us that we would learn and grow. So Father, we just give you this time. Speak to us now through your spirit. Lord, take my words and Lord, stir our hearts, we pray. Lord, that it would all be for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I say, last week uh, we're going to pick up for chapter 18 this morning. But just to remind ourselves where we are, we saw the end of the northern kingdom. So, Hoshea, the last king of Israel, uh, around about 722 BC. And this whole period of the kings, just around about 264 years from the time of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom. And we just see this constant downward spiral as they walk away from God, as they do what that which seems right in their own eyes. Well, doesn't it sound a little bit like the world today? And we commented last week that if you take it from the time of Saul to the time of the collapse of the Northern Kingdom, you've got a period of around about 400 years. And you know, you think of our nation, you think back 400 years ago. That was when the King James Bible was translated into English and there were so many godly men and women in this country you know, in positions of leadership and authority and in 400 years how far away we've moved as a nation so many things have been introduced so many things subtly and some far less subtle you know, you realise that we're not all that dissimilar it's very easy to look at Israel and, and see the idolatry they got into and think that was them, we'd never do that but the truth is Everybody loves to worship something. You know, whatever it is that you find to worship, you will find something to worship. And that's why we should, of course, have the greatest object of worship and affection as our, our God and Saviour, as in Jesus. I mean, all the other things are just, we're going to leave us empty. They're just false. And again, just looking at the timeline so this is where we're looking right from the time of creation all the way through um, to the time of Abraham, approximately 2,000 years from creation to Abraham, and then another 2,000 years from Abraham to the time of Jesus, and then another 2,000 years from the time of Jesus up until where we are now. And this time of the monarchy, this is a period of 400 years or so uh, that we're looking at, that's sitting right in the middle there. Um, and we're leading up to the exile of Judah, but last week we saw... And the exile of the northern kingdom, taken captive into Assyria. Assyria, this is the size of the empire, a huge empire really. This kind of area we said last time I mentioned it, referred to as the Fertile Crescent. Um, and Israel being down here, Jerusalem, Samaria. Syria up here, again familiar because of so much on the news at the moment, with Damascus and so on. But the whole of this area then comes under the sway of the Assyrian Empire. And Assyria will remain in power for a while. And then eventually, of course, Babylon will rise and the Babylonian Empire will come and overtake and subdue the Assyrian Empire and just engulf uh, that and rule a larger area. So geographically that's what we're looking at. In terms of the kings of Assyria, and we just went through a lot of these last week, uh, we see 
from the list. Shalmaneser is the one we saw last week. Uh, this king laid siege to Samaria for three years, but seemingly during this three-year period, um, he dies, and then Sargon II um, comes to the throne, seemingly his son, uh, carries on the, the kingdom. And he's the one that actually leads one of the um, Assyrian um, documents, manuscripts they found, refers to 27,280 people that were carried away from the northern kingdom. Um, and uh, typically the way the Assyrians carried people away, it wasn't very friendly as such. They were literally chained them together, uh, even putting chains through their, their noses or their ears to drag them on. So they just couldn't escape. Um, and that's the this desperate situation that Israel uh, had ended up in. And so really everything we've been looking at really has been kind of fairly bleak. Uh, we've just been looking at the consequence of sin, the consequence of disobedience and so on. Um, what we're going to look at now is what happens down south, the, the continuing lives of those in Judah, the southern kingdom. So Samaria up here, now all of this area is now under the sway of Assyria. And this area, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, uh, this was David's dynasty in a sense, uh, falling on Jerusalem down here. Um, and we're going to see one of five good kings that come to the throne. Let's start uh, in chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So we introduce now to this man, Hezekiah. Now you can see on the chart on the screen there, you've got these kings in green. They're the good kings. They're the only really good kings. There's a few others that do things that are not too bad, but overall, the only real good kings here uh, are King Asa, who actually falls apart at the end, Jehoshaphat, who is a good king, King Joash, Hezekiah, as we'll see, he makes some mistakes, and yet overall he's a good king. And then we'll move on in a week or two to Josiah as well. So these are the kings that we're looking at. Hezekiah now, this is when the northern kingdom, as I said already, goes into captivity. So we pick it up in verse 2. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. Now, a couple of things to mention. Firstly, Hezekiah finally gets rid of these high places. If you remember, we've seen many kings that they seem to have done okay, but they left the high places. You know, they left that opportunity to sin. The high places typically, the reason these places were built, these groves and so on, on top of hills, on top of mountains, was because at that time the cultures worshipped the planets, the stars and so on. And quite possibly for some very interesting reasons, and when we can explore that maybe some other time, there's some very interesting conjecture surrounding that. But nevertheless, that's what they did. And what happened was, as Israel going through these phases of sometimes walking with God, sometimes getting into idolatry, so these high places got turned into places where God could be worshipped. And of course, it's kind of merging the two. We see this with the Christian church. I was reading a, an article the other day. It was just talking about um, one of the worst possible things that ever happened to the Christian church was when Constantine 
effectively legalized Christianity back in around about 300 AD. Up until that point, the Christian church was persecuted. We didn't have buildings to meet in. Christians were meeting from home to home, you know, and quite often fearful for their lives. But the church was growing. And then all of a sudden, Christianity becomes legalized. And it's actually then the pagan religions that are on the back foot. And what happens is that the Christians end up moving into the pagan buildings, just like these high places. Rather than destroying those things and carrying on serving God as they were, they ended up adopting these buildings. And did you ever wonder where the church got all these lavish, ornate buildings from? All the beautiful stained glass windows and all the wonderful architecture. I mean... The Middle Ages was great for architecture, but terrible for Christianity. Because all that happened is we started adopting, the church started adopting the pagan practices. The idea of kind of an elite priesthood, which really all stems back to Babylon. Not the kind of priesthood that we read of in scripture. And so many other things that get introduced into the church. Well, the same thing was going on in Israel at this point. That they'd merged the worship of God and kind of the worship of their pagan deities and so on. Um, but Hezekiah now comes along and he removes the high places. He gets rid of them. It's such a good thing. I mean, we see so many that hadn't done that. But the other thing we're told here is that he breaks in pieces this brazen serpent that Moses had made. Now you remember the story. Let's just uh, recount it for you. So the children of Israel, they've left Egypt. They're journeying now in the wilderness getting ready to move across the the Jordan into the promised land. But on the journey, and this is recorded for us in the book of Numbers, let's read. They journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The the ringing bells for us, you know, sometimes it gets tough and we get discouraged. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this light bread, referring to the manna. The the bread that God was providing for them. You know, it's easy to get discouraged because the way is hard. And, you know, this complaining and murmuring had become a national pastime for Israel. This is why in the New Testament that we're warned not to make the same mistakes that they did. We shouldn't murmur, we shouldn't complain. We should rejoice in what God is doing and look to see that God is leading and guiding. Verse 6 of Numbers 21 carries on. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Isn't it sad that sometimes it takes something like this for people to realize that they stepped outside of God's plan. That they started to follow their own lusts, their own desires. And it says, For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpents of brass, he lived. So it's an incredible situation. Quite bizarre, in a sense, as you look at it, that God would ask Moses to do this. But of course, there was a bigger plan and purpose. Uh, incidentally, this serpent on a pole has become the symbol of the medical profession to this day. You may have seen these badges that sometimes nurses will wear on their uniforms and doctors and so on. 
Um, where you have this kind of serpent wrapped around a pole, uh, various different types of those uh, that exist. But even to this day, and of course it goes back to numbers. The, you, you'll hear, of course, of uh, um, uh, the um, Aesculapius, the uh, Greek chappy, um, supposedly be the father of medicine. But of course all of this goes back to, to Moses. It's where it really all comes from. Interestingly, in the New Testament, we're given a real explanation of what all that was referring to. And we're told as Nicodemus is uh, coming up to see Jesus and uh, comes to see him by night, Jesus gives this response to Nicodemus. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so de- directly referring to that which we've just read, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, drawing something that Nicodemus would have known and understood from the history of Israel, and then saying, that is all speaking about me. And Jesus is speaking now about heavenly things. He's been speaking about earthly things, and in verse 12 he said, if I've told you earthly things and you believe them not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? As we've just seen, comes from Numbers 21. Now, this serpent on the pole, what does it really all mean? Well, brass is a metal that is associated with judgment, partly because it's something that can contain the heat. So brass speaks of judgment. The serpent, no surprise, speaks of sin. So by putting the serpent up on this brass pole, we're seeing, in a sense, sin being judged. That's the idea that's being represented here by this serpent that Moses was told to make and put on this pole. So what was required to be delivered from a bite of one of these snakes? Well, it was quite simple. Faith in the only remedy that God prescribed. It's interesting that we don't read in that account in Numbers that the people complained because they wanted a different way. You see, they recognized that if they'd been bitten by one of these serpents, they were going to die. And when a solution is presented, a remedy is presented. They don't say, well, I don't like that option. I'd rather do it this way. People just seem, at this point, as they really fully understand the weight of the predicament they're in, that there is only one remedy. And that's enough. One remedy is all we need. Question, was God obligated to provide the remedy? No, not at all. It was entirely a work of grace. See, if you remember, the people have been murmuring and complaining and so on. And that's why God allowed this judgment to come upon them. But as they cry out to him, God provides a solution and it is entirely of grace. You see, all they had to do was to look upon this serpent on the pole. And have faith. That's all they had to do. But notice again that the cure could not be passed on to another. This isn't something that you could do for your husband or for your wife. You couldn't do it for a friend. Each individual that had been bitten by these serpents would have had to look upon this serpent on the pole themselves. It wasn't something that could be transferred. And in just the same way, we have to look to Jesus individually. You can't rely on the fact that your husband or your wife or a friend or a colleague or whatever is saved and think that will be good enough. Each one of us is accountable to God for themselves. You know, there is a slight, I say exception to that, but with children who are 
in a Christian family. Those Christians, children, if their parents believe, are under a family ticket, as it were, to start with. But there comes a point that those children come to a place where they make a decision for themselves, just like as we've seen this morning that Esther and Marla have done. What a wonderful thing. They're no longer relying on a family ticket. They now have their own ticket, their own guarantee of eternal life. What a wonderful thing that God has done. Again, each individual in Israel had to look to the serpent on the pole themselves. <clears throat> Once again, as the as Moses lifted up the serpent in the world, and it's even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, Jesus was lifted up on the cross. That whosoever believes in him, and that's, the, that's what it's all about. It's just believing in Jesus. Not believing that he exists, but believing that he is the remedy for the problem of sin. This is the gospel. So just the same way. And notice again, it's whosoever. This offer is open to everyone. We were looking in First John on Thursday evening. That Jesus is the propitiation, the payment in full. Not just for our sin, but for the sins of the whole world. Anybody can look. Look what the promise is. Eternal life. Not something you've earned or deserved. But a gift of God. Because of his great love for us. You see, we had all been bitten by sin, just as they'd been bitten by these serpents. We were all as dead, just as they were. And we're told in the book of Ephesians that we were dead in trespasses and sins. But then two of the most wonderful words in the Bible follow that in Ephesians. It says, but God. God did something that we could never have done. You see, only by faith in the one remedy that God has prescribed can we be saved. There is no other option. You can't say, I don't like that choice. There is only one remedy for sin. It's the shed blood of Jesus. Each person has to look to the cross for themselves. And again, entirely by grace, not of works. There's nothing we can add. This portion in John's Gospel carries on, and we know this verse so well, but let me just read it. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Just by believing that he is the payment believing that he is the remedy. Well, again, the situation that had occurred in Israel in the days of Hezekiah, to bring us back to kings, was that the children of Israel had started to worship this object. Rather than seeing it for what it was, they started to make it something special. Interestingly, the way this is translated, this is, and he called it, implies that um, Hezekiah gives it this particular name, Nishutan. Now, that's not seemingly the case. And some translations translate it slightly differently, but it's the people seemingly were the ones who called it something different. 
And the name they give it is not Nekesh, which is the serpent, but the brass or the brass thing. Okay, so not again, and the, the Nekesh meaning the serpent, but Nakushtan. That's from Barnes's commentary, he makes that observation. And I just think this is so interesting because isn't that what people do today? Confronted with sin, what do people do? Oh, it's not that bad. It's not really sin. It's not as bad as that person or this person. Or it's not as bad as that thing. Yeah, how people want to avoid the acknowledgement of sin. And Israel end up worshipping this thing, but they don't want to recognise it as a serpent because, of course, the serpent's got very dark connotations to it because of the Garden of Eden and so on. So they want to rename it something that sits a little bit more comfortably with them. And isn't that just what people tend to do today? Try and water down sin. Yeah, we change the words so it's not quite so offensive to us. You know, there used to be a time when people were referred to, if they were not married and living together, it was referred to living in sin. And now we have all sorts of different phrases to explain that, to try and soften it so it's not quite so harsh. So it doesn't kind of prick on our consciences in quite the same way. Well, that's exactly what Israel were doing with this serpent. But, of course, Hezekiah recognises that this thing has just become an idolatrous thing. They weren't worshipping God. They weren't even using it to enhance their worship of God. It would just become an idol, something they would worship themselves. So he breaks it into pieces. Now, incredibly, this thing then later resurfaces. Now, probably, in all honesty, it's not the real thing. But in a, a cathedral in Milan... Apparently they managed to get all the bits together and they've reconstructed it. So you can go once again and worship this thing if you really want to. Uh, of course, these, these things that the church, the Catholic church predominantly, um, but other branches of the church as the church grew through the ages, started collecting these relics and so on. Um, but uh, this thing that Hezekiah was keen to smash into bits because it would lead people astray. Well, people have gone straight back and... Reminder of a dog returning to, to its vomit, as we're told in Proverbs. Well, we carry on, and we're told of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. What a lovely phrase that is. I mean, to have recorded in God's word, you know, that you trusted in God. And we're told, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. Now, just to clarify here, David was before him. But David wasn't a king of Judah. David was a king of Israel, of the combined nation. So this is kind of excluding David, in a sense. But speaking of the kings of Judah, we're told that there were none like him that were before or after him. And another great verse, verse 6, For he clave unto the Lord. What a lovely kind of description of his relationship with God. Yeah, how you and I should cleave to God. You know, that word is used, of course, in regarding Genesis, with a a man and a woman. That a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, to be joined together. And we're told that Hezekiah was such with the Lord. What a a kind of an example for us. You know, a challenge this morning. Do you cleave to God? He cleaved to the Lord and departed not from following him. But kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. That means he read God's word. He understood the word. It was instructed that all kings, when they came to the throne, would read through the Torah. 
Now this king seems to be one that almost certainly had done that. Because he kept the things that had been commanded that God had given to Moses. And the Lord was with him and he prospered. It's, it's as simple as that. You know, read Psalm 1 as a great record of the way your life will be if you sow to the Spirit. And also it will tell you what your life will be if you sow to the flesh. Someone speaks of the blessings that come. I mean, how many times do people pray for blessing? Some years ago, before I was here as pastor, I had opportunity to come and uh, over, I think, five different sessions. We looked at the blessings that we read of in the Word of God. And you know, most of the blessings that are there, you can go and grab hold of. It's about an obedient life. It's about living and walking with God. Blessed is the man that. And then we're given the conditions that if you adhere to those things, if you walk with God, if you serve God, God promises blessings. Of course, the ultimate blessing is just a work of grace, which is our salvation. But so many blessings are there for us. And King Hezekiah, a recipient of the blessings of God, we are told the Lord was with him and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. Again, that word prospering is referenced to, or is the same word we have in Psalm 1. Speaking of a man whose life is hidden in God, prospering in everything he does. And we're told, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Now that's a bold move. This is the king of Assyria who's starting to eat up all of the surrounding nations. Syria has already fallen to Assyria. The northern kingdom of Israel has now fallen. And yet Hezekiah decides he's not going to serve this foreign king. What a bold move on his part. And then we're also told that he smote the Philistines even unto Gaza and the borders thereof from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Just a quick uh, side note there, by the way. The the Philistines, they weren't original inhabitants of the land. Seemingly they'd come from northern Africa. Um, They'd gone to Cyprus and then from Cyprus across to the area of Canaan. Um, But nevertheless, these areas we read about where Israel had problems, Gaza... Today on the news, we read about it, we hear about it so frequently. But it was one of the places that Joshua and the generation that followed Joshua failed to conquer. And God had said that they would have continual problems. And don't we just see that? Anyway, so Hezekiah spoke the Philistines even to Gaza and the borders thereof from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. And he came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Eli, king of Israel, the Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up and against Samaria and besieged it. So again, just recap of the history we've been speaking about. And at the end of the three years, they took it. Now notice the they uh, that we have here. They took it. Because Shalmaneser seemingly now moves on, and Sargon comes onto the scene, and he's the one that completes the work of the siege. Even in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel unto Assyria and put them in Hala and Haber by the river of Gozan in the city of the Medes. And what was happening, they were split up. People moved here, people moved there, so that they'd end up getting so wrapped up in the culture of where they'd gone. You see, if you had to put them all in one place, the chances are they'd have retained so much of that which they'd known. 
But the intention of the Assyrians was to split them up, send them to different places. And as a result, they'll just get merged into, absorbed into the society. Verse 12, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and would not hear them, nor do them. Now, in the 14th year of Hezekiah, did Shennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. So now all the, the cities that are laying round about, all these fenced cities that were there, Shennacherib comes up, takes them, and obviously then we read, Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria, to Larkish, saying, I have offended, return from me that which thou puttest on me will I bear. He was agreeing to pay tribute to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So he sets him this, this charge, this tax that he's got to pay, and so on. Now, if you go to the British Museum in, Live, in London, um, you'll see there a whole room that's dedicated to this period of history, and particularly the siege at um, Larkish there, um, where uh, the king of Assyria had it in, under siege for some time before it finally fell. Uh, and it's right at this time that we're reading now. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And at that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars, which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Larkish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, they came out to them, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak you now to Hezekiah. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? So the situation, Larkish has fallen. They now come up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is now being besieged by Assyria. And they're starting to taunt. They're saying, you know, what confidence have you got against the king of Assyria? Verse 21, Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust him. So, saying, don't trust in Egypt for your deliverance. Egypt at this time were a fairly strong nation. And of course, the idea was, and the Assyrians thought, well, Israel are going to rely on Egypt to deliver them. And the warning is, don't bother doing that. They won't be able to help you. It carries on, verse 22. This continued taunt from Assyria, uh, from this Rabshakeh. And he says, but if you say unto me, we trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Now, this just shows the ignorance of those who are not gods. You see, Hezekiah had removed the high places. Why? In obedience to God. And yet this pagan man, this uh, servant of the king of Assyria comes, and he sees that these things have been destroyed, and thinks, well, surely that was where you worshipped, and you've now taken it away, so God's going to judge you for it. 
You see, he was assuming that our God is like the other gods. This is something that happens quite often, actually, in conversations we have with people. They will take what they perceive, what they know, and they'll try and fit our faith into what they know. And then they'll draw some conclusions, just as being done here. Totally false conclusions. People don't understand our God. Our God is bigger and better and greater and mightier than anything they know and can comprehend. And our God is not like the gods of the nations. They were just false gods. But this individual looking and just trying to join the dots together, thinking, but you've taken away those things, thinking that you needed those high places in in order to worship God. Well, not at all. And he carries on, Hezekiah is taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Well, that's exactly what God had told them to do. They were come to come to the place in which God would put his name. Originally it was Shiloh, that later becomes Jerusalem. And the children of Israel, three times in a year, were to go to Jerusalem to serve God, to offer their sacrifices. <laughs> There's a lesson in that. You know, you can't just go to God, just go to the nearest high place and worship God in the way you choose. God has ordained the way in which we're to worship him. And we're told that we should worship him in spirit and in truth. Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee 2,000 horses, if they are able to put uh, thy part to set riders upon them. This is just a, a brag. Just saying, no. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can put people on them, see how you're going on with it. And he says, how will then... How thou will thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants? He's like, yeah, I'll give you 2,000 horses. We're going to get the, the, the least of my master's servants and he'll come against you. And put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? And then notice this bold statement. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Really? Did God say that? You know, people are very quick to speak in God's name and to say that God has said this or God has said that. You need to be extremely careful. Uh, this, from the context, I don't believe for a moment is God speaking to the king of Assyria and telling him to go and destroy Israel at this point in time. God had a plan. God knew when it was going to be unfolded. And Assyria were not the ones to lead Judah away captive. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Sheba, and Joah, Unto Rab Shekhar, speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the Jews' language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rab Shekhar said unto them, Hath my master sent me to thy master, and to thee, to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. So they're now speaking to the people. The people on the wall that go overhear this kind of conversation going on and saying, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, saying, trust in God. Well, isn't that just what the devil would love to do? You know, as anybody comes into your life and the Lord allows people to minister to you, 
encourage you to trust God. And all the time there's that kind of like, oh, don't trust God. Don't, that's just foolish. You know, but we can trust God. You know, it's like Zach was sharing with us this morning. Yeah, we can trust God in any situation, in any circumstance. God will never fail us. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. We need to trust God, whatever the circumstances, whether it's something that seems right or something that seems wrong. We trust God. We stay true to his word. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me. And then eat every man of his own vine and every one his own fig tree and drink you every one the waters of his cistern until I come and take away and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of, uh, of, ol- of oil olives and of honey, that you may live and not die. Well, isn't this the epitome of temptation here? Come on, it's going to be okay. It'll be really good. Just like your land now. Be lots of things to eat, lots of things to drink. It'll be a great place. And you're going to live, you're not going to die. How Satan would love to pull us away from the things of God. To draw us away, to get us absorbed into the culture in which we live. And of course, those that tell you, don't become like the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world's philosophies cheat you and deceive you. You know, again in 1 John we read of the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We read of the things of this world. We're told not to love the things of this world. These things are going to disappear. Don't get pulled into the things of this world, whatever they be, even if it's only harmless entertainment. You know, we've got a whole industry devoted to try and entertain you. And really, all they're trying to do is to stop you thinking, or to stop you thinking about godly things. That's what the devil would love. To fill your mind with all sorts of other things that may not necessarily be sinful, but they might not be helpful to you. You know, and it always starts with just a little bit. And then we get pulled away. You know, and even just things that sometimes seem so innocuous. I think I, I shared with you a little while ago. I, in the mornings, I used to get to the, the platform at the station before going up to London. And I'd just pick up the morning paper that was there and waiting for the train, I'd read it. And over a period of time, I just realized that it was so depressing. I mean, news often it can be, and that's obviously though they go for things that make headlines. But it wasn't just that the stories were depressing, but it was just ungodly. And then you'd get reports about what this celebrity had done or what that celebrity had done and how they'd been promiscuous or something had happened. And you start to see how ungodly those influences are. And I stopped doing it. I just read my Bible now. I just got it on my phone and I just stand there on the platform. I've read, this year I've read through most of the New Testament just standing on the platform. I've just, just loved it. It's been really good. And you just setting your mind on the things above. Don't get drawn into the culture. 
You know, there's all sorts of TV programs that can seem attractive. And again, I'm not saying that any of these are necessarily sinful, but it's the effect they have over a period of time. You know, think how much time you spend this year watching TV or Facebook or whatever else. And think, had that time have been employed reading God's word, or reading spiritual books, things that are going to encourage and edify and help us. How differently will we be feeling right now? Of course, the devil will do this. You know, come on, leave your own land. Come on, come away. Got everything you want, and that's the way that the world portrays it. And everyone else is going to be doing it. So why don't you? Well. Praise God for people like Hezekiah that was bold enough to say, the Lord will deliver us. You know, even in this situation where it was quite a desperate, desperate time. The northern kingdom had fallen, parts of Judah now fallen, Jerusalem itself under siege. This great king of Assyria had not been defeated. And yet Hezekiah goes, you know what, I'm going to trust God. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how God is going to do this. But unless God comes through, there is no tomorrow. But I am prepared to trust God because I've seen the way that God worked with Abraham. I've seen what God did with Isaac and Jacob. I've seen the way that God led Moses. And then Joshua. I've seen the way that God delivered Gideon and Israel from the hand of the Midianites. I see the way that the Lord worked through the life of Samson. And even though Samson disobeyed at the end of his life, God still delivered Israel through him. And Hezekiah could have thought back to times when, under King Asa of Judah, there was a two million man Ethiopian army bearing down on Israel, intent on destroying them. And Asa gives us that great verse, we will rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And God delivered Israel. And Hezekiah has got all of these things. And You know, you and I this morning, we've got these examples that we can look at. God has never failed his people. But he asks us to trust him. He asks us to be faithful. To not get absorbed into the culture. Rab Shaker carries on and says, Has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? <laughs> no, because they weren't real gods. But then he asks, he says, Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arphad? Where are the gods of Serevaim, Hena and Ivar? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries? that have delivered their country out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. <laughs> and I noticed a minute ago, this individual was telling us that God had sent him. And now he's uh, saying, well, I'm sure God wouldn't deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. And to conclude this morning, but the people held their peace. That's a wise thing on this occasion. And answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. What a a great situation it is. We've got a godly king that trusts God. 
that is not wanting to be like the nations around him. And the people trusted their king. You know, I guarantee you there were people that were probably murmuring and saying, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Maybe we should just give in to the king of Assyria. Let's go and have some of that honey in Assyria. That sounds quite nice. I'm sure there were people that were doing that. But there was enough people that were there that said, no, we trust our king. Our king serves God. So the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's command was saying, answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah, with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Reb Shaker. Now, we're kind of pausing halfway through. I'd like to carry on, but we'll leave it there for this morning. I encourage you to read the next couple of chapters. Next week, as I said, uh, Doug Keane from Hastings is going to come and speak to us on the personal work of the Holy Spirit. And then the following week, we'll pick up, carrying on, and we'll look at the next two chapters, which really just tell us a little more about the life of this King Hezekiah, this king that trusted God. Faced with impossible odds, he still trusted God. What a great lesson, a great example to follow. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we just thank you for people like Hezekiah that trusted you. Father, in a world where there is so much temptation to become like the world, to follow after and worship the gods that the world worships. Lord, we pray that we would have the kind of resolve and determination that Hezekiah did to to trust you, to follow you, to walk with you and serve you. Lord, even for that, we recognize that we need your grace. Lord, we have been saved by your grace and your word tells us that we are sanctified by your grace. Set apart. Lord, set us apart, we pray. May we be different from the world. May we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, may we think differently. And Lord, in this coming week, let us set our minds on the things above. Not on the things of this world. Not on the things that are temporary that will fade away. But on the things that are eternal. May we spend our time thinking upon Jesus. On his majesty, his glory. On the fact that he will soon come back to take us to be with him. That we will see him as he is. Lord, this is our hope. This is our future. Lord, just impress these things upon our hearts now. And keep us growing In that knowledge and grace we pray for, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.